The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, listeners. I'm so pleased to have Pete Crooks, a journalist for Diablo Magazine and now author of his recently released book, The Setup, A True Story of Dirty Cops, Soccer Moms, and Reality TV. Hi, Pete. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. Um, over four years ago, I launched PIs Declassified to portray the many positive endeavors private investigators are involved in, from interesting cases to philanthropic activities. But every once in a while, there's a situation so egregious that it commands our attention, my attention, even if it's the wrong kind of attention. There are a few bad apples in every profession, and that is unfortunately the case today. We have a tale of conspiracy, fraud, and deceit, corrupt cops, and a crooked PI. But first, I'm sure you want to know more about who Pete Crooks is. Pete, I know you are... I know you as a journalist, editor of the Northern California-based Diablo magazine, but tell us more about yourself. Um, I'm a uh, East Bay-raised um, California native. Uh, grew up in Walnut Creek, California in the 1970s. Where it was a really kind of quiet, charming, small town before Neiman Marcus and Pottery Barn and all kinds of big chain stores <laughs> came um, to Walnut Creek and sort of turned it into this shopping epicenter of the suburban East Bay. And uh, I, I just had a lovely childhood growing up in this utopian suburbia and then spent my 20s um, kind of as this curious vagabond. Uh, I, I lived in Micronesia, worked at a sports resort in Guam for a year and learned to scuba dive and went diving in the Palawan Islands of the West Pacific and then lived in Sydney, Australia for a, for a year and taught in an after-school center um, there and then... Um, took a job and I worked a winter at the Grand Canyon National Park. Um, mm. I loved the Grand Canyon from camping trips as a kid and in college we'd take road trips out there and camp and I always wanted to spend like a month there and watch the sun kind of come up and go down over the canyon for a period of time and I really had no idea what I was going to do with my career so um, I kind of decided to kill some time and, and spend a winter at the Grand Canyon working at the um, as a sort of a, a accountant in the El Tabar Hotel. And during that time, um, I started writing a letter or a postcard to somebody every day just as a writing exercise and as a way to send mail out. This was just before email became kind of you know, pervasive mm-hmm. in our life. And mm-hmm. I found that if I sent a letter or a postcard every day, I got 
mail in return. Maybe not at that rate, but if I if I stayed you know consistent with that, um, then I got mail. And, and going to the PO box at the at the national park was actually kind of a highlight of the day. There wasn't a lot to do there except you know look at this incredible scenery. Um, so that's where I really started writing every day. Mm. And uh, it, 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 was a, it was a really good exercise that led to my career as a writer and as a journalist. Um, uh, by the end of that time at the Grand Canyon, I had several articles published in the, um, the daily paper out of Flagstaff, Arizona, this great little college town near the Grand Canyon. And, uh, you know, I wrote about pop culture stuff. I'm not like an investigative reporter type or a crime beat guy. Um, I'm a huge film buff, classic mm-hmm. films, um, film noir uh, Hollywood of the, you know, golden yesteryear. And, um, and so I, the first thing I had published was an article about what it was like to live in a national park and be two hours away from the nearest movie theater, you know, hmm. having grown up in suburbia where I could take a public bus down to the five screen multiplex and see airplane or star Wars or whatever. And so, uh, so, you know, that was kind of my, my um, introduction to journalism uh, was writing about pop culture stuff. And then uh, I came back through the Bay Area um, in the late 90s and kind of expecting to go back and live in Australia for a while. I'd been accepted to a graduate school program in Sydney, and um, there was this job opening at Diablo Magazine, this regional magazine that my parents got when I was growing up. Right. Um, it covers lifestyle. <clears throat> Again, <clears throat> excuse me, not a um, hard-boiled criminal underbelly type of publication that's always looking for um, crime and corruption. But more like, you know, here's great places to take the kids for an easy hike, or, you know, here's the new restaurant that opened in, in Danville that um, everybody's buzzing about. Um, you know, a, a magazine that really celebrates the, the really nice mm-hmm. lifestyle that's available in the East Bay and the, you know, yeah, the beauty I, of the open space and the community, you know. And, yeah, and I'm uh, sure... Was, I- yeah, I was just Go going to say, I'm sure our listeners are familiar. It's the, it's the kind of tabletop, glossy magazine that you often see uh, in offices or in homes. Uh, it's a great magazine. Thanks. I, I love the magazine. I love the community that the magazine covers. So it's just been a, a really nice fit. Um, and that was, that was 15 years ago. I mean, I, uh, I started in a more entry-level editorial position there. And the first week or two that I was there... The editors were like, oh, you know, we didn't cover any society events this month. Um, maybe we should kill the society page. And I said, well, I saw on the side of the Lesher Center in Walnut Creek that um, Animal Rescue Foundation is having an event, and the mm. Eagles are going to be there, and uh, Mark McGuire, who had just broken the home run record, is going to be there, and Clint Black and Bruce Hornsby, and they're like, wow, you know, here's the digital camera. Go, go shoot that. <laughs> and so I kind of became the default um, society reporter. And I would go to, I mean, that was a great event. That was the first event I covered for Diablo's Faces section. And there were all these, you know, international right. music and film stars there in Walnut Creek. Uh, you know, the next one after that was like the um, local nonprofit, you know, um, fundraiser at a bowling alley or something. So it, it wasn't all uh, star-studded. But, but going to those events really was a great way to get out in the community and meet people like there's so much great volunteer work and nonprofit work being done in the East Bay people really exactly. making an effort to help uh, improve the community and so um, you know that's kind of where I got my feet wet and then I just started contributing stories and photos to every issue of that magazine monthly 
you know, 12 issues a year for 15 years now. And, um, mm. you know, it's been, a, it's been an amazing experience. I've got, gotten to meet so many interesting people and write so many great stories. And then certainly the expose on, on this whole case has been the biggest story by far that the magazine has ever seen, you know, getting national media coverage and, and, and turning into a book. And how did you get involved in this story? Well, it, it's incredible, really. The, um, the case came to me from a, from a publicist. So it wasn't Chris Butler, the private investigator from Concord, California, who, who reached out. It was a Beverly Hills publicist who okay. Chris Butler had hired. Um, and the pitch went like this. Chris Butler was a former police officer from Antioch who had taken over a, a PI business in Concord. And in his tenure as a, you know, tough guy PI, he'd kind of come across this unique um, training playground of, of, of new recruits for investigators, and they were mm-hmm. suburban soccer moms. Mm-hmm. And Butler said that he had hired a mom, and she had all these skills that really were essential for, for good investigative work. Uh, she was a good team player. She had a sixth sense when somebody wasn't being honest or when something was amiss. Um, she was very organized and dedicated. And all these skills that moms have, you know, making sure that the kids are all on time for band practice or soccer practice and have a healthy lunch pack for school or whatever, actually apply to private investigative work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this publicist laid this out, you know, that um, that's the pitch. He's hiring suburban soccer moms to BPIs, which was a very appealing pitch, I have to say. I get pitched all the time from somebody who has, you know, barbecues for sale in New Jersey, and I say, well, that has nothing to do with the East Bay, so thank you very much, you know. And this one was like, hey, here's all these East Bay moms who are doing this exciting work. You know, they're right in the readership demographic of Diablo magazine. But the real hook to this was that, Chris Butler and these PI moms had gotten a ton of media attention. They had been covered in the Contra Costa Times. They had been covered on NBC Bay Area and ABC San Francisco's View from the Bay, and they'd gotten national attention. They, were in, they got a, you know, a, a very flattering piece on the Today Show. Mm-hmm. People Magazine did like a four-page feature on them, and um, Dr. Phil did a whole hour like applauding these PI moms and Chris Butler and how um, exciting this was. And in each of these media pieces, they had a reporter out in the field with the PI moms, like following a case. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. it wasn't just, you know, their word. It was, hey, we're, you know, embedded with the PI moms. And that was what I was invited to do, was go follow the PI moms on one of their investigations. And the, the real hook editorially was that Lifetime Television was just about to start filming a new reality series kind of like the Real Housewives of the East Bay, except they were the Real Housewives PIs. And that was, you know, this was a show that was going to have a major network behind it, and we'd be driving by on the freeway, and you'd see a billboard with the PI moms and Chris Butler with their arms crossed looking serious, you know, and Mm -hmm. saying, uh, watch the PI moms Tuesdays on Lifetime. And for Diablo Magazine, a regional magazine, like when there's a national media celebrity, um, that's a great hook for us. That, you know, is a very appealing cover possibility and it's a very appealing feature story. In fact, the reason that I was personally 
selected to write the story by the PI moms, Chris Butler, and their publicist was that a year before all this happened, I wrote a feature story about a man that grew up in Lafayette named Will Forte, who mm-hmm. made a, you know, he was on Saturday Night Live for eight or nine seasons, and has, he's a wonderful actor, and he's great in a movie called Nebraska that came out, you know, after this, this all happened. But Will Forte was going to be in a feature film called McGruber, which was this, like, goofy spy movie, sort of a spoof on the old MacGyver TV show. And so one of these PI moms had gone to high school with Will Forte. She was in his graduating class at Aquilani's High School in Lafayette. And I did this story, and we interviewed Will and did a photo shoot with him at 30 Rockefeller Center on the Saturday Night Live set. You know, it was a big blowout story for Diablo. And this PI mom brought that issue into Chris Butler's office and said, have the publicist contact this guy, Pete Crooks. He's the guy that writes the big pop culture stories. He's the guy that's going to get us put on the cover of Diablo magazine. So Mm -hmm. that's how I got sucked into all this was, you know, my coverage of celebrity with an East Bay angle. And and this reality show that Lifetime was, um, was looking at doing was scheduled to start filming in November of 2010, and so two months before that, on September 11th, 2010, I went on a ride-along on a sort of an infidelity investigation with two PI moms and Chris Butler, and I was told it would be like a three- to four-hour experience on a Saturday morning. It turned out to be this 10-hour extravaganza where there were two teams of investigators and Chris Butler showing up. It was this crazy, crazy day. Um, nine adults in all are a part of this thing, which turned out to be this massive hoax. This, you know, I got, like, I got to tell you, Pete, that the first, and you probably know this now, but the first fl- red flag is that they ask you to go on a confidential investigation. Yeah, that's interesting, right? Nobody. I mean, the Private Investigator Act for California has a confidentiality provision that, in, that unless you are asked by a police officer if there's some kind of crime being involved, um, you can't disclose who your client is or what you're doing. Mm. I, so I certainly didn't know about that code. Now, this wouldn't have been a, a criminal investigation. This was, no, it doesn't. Uh, no, it doesn't. No, I, I'm sorry. I, kind of mis, I probably misled you. Unless yeah. you would be asked um, by a police officer involved in a criminal investigation, you cannot disclose who your client is or what you're doing. Wow. Well, so that's that would be that because was the first red flag. <laughs> and, that, and there were a lot of red flags, or as I said recently to somebody, blazing road flares that there was something amiss with this. But here's why I didn't think, hey, is this all a lie to trick me? One was two days before I went on that ride-along, I went to... Um, meet the PI moms and Chris Butler at his office in Concord. And their client came to that meeting. It was a surprise to me. I didn't realize I was going to be meeting this client. And this client had agreed that Diablo Magazine could write a story, but she didn't want to be identified or her fiancé, who you know, the PI moms would be you know, doing surveillance on, would be identified or anything that would you know, call her out. But she said it was, it was okay as long as those details weren't identified. And... You know, I, I talked to this client who started crying and saying, you know, my fiance's been going to the gym for like four, five, ten hours, and then, you know, I finally checked his gym bag and his, his workout clothes were neatly folded, and 
it hadn't been used, and I, I just think something's wrong. And, and she really broke down crying, and she was a very effective actor in this ruse. But um, it was so complex. And so, you know, the sympathy I felt for that woman, who did not seem to be this sort of slick, I'm going to be on TV type at all. She was a, you know, East Bay resident from one of the, you know, tawny suburban neighborhoods. Um, I, I felt very sympathetic to her situation. Um, and then there were just so many players in this, in this hoax. And then finally, you know, this point that you mentioned that, that there's actually a policy against that or a, a rule against that, you know, mm-hmm. somebody should have told that to the Today Show, Dr. Phil, Contra Cross the Times, like, I was about the 10th or 12th journalist well, that was set up by these people. So yeah, they were able to... Go ahead. Right. It's not up to the, the entity. I mean, like the Today Show, it would, it's the requirement of the private investigator. Mm-hmm. So, Well, my point is that there was this house of cards that had built up, been built up so high with all this yeah. coverage. And, you know, independently, it's my job to vet these sources. But I have to say that I was, um, you know, I was duped along in that, okay, well, they've already yeah. gotten the Today Show people, all these people have covered them already, and Lifetime's going to do a reality show. So it just didn't cross my mind that, like, wait a second, is, are nine people conspiring to lie to me to right. get to put, place a positive article in Diablo magazine? That just didn't cross my mind. But that said, there were a lot of road flares that when I was tipped off that this had been a hoax, all of those things popped up like giant exclamation parks and points. And, and then the other editors at Diablo magazine said, look, there's no way. We got this email on January 3rd, 2011 from what was clearly a made-up email address, an anonymous source saying, hey, you got played for a fool. It's very aggressive. It didn't say, like, there's something mm. going on here with crime and please don't, you know, let Chris Butler know. It was sort of calling out, you got played for a fool. Your magazine is a cl- classy magazine that doesn't deserve to cover somebody of Chris Butler's character. Everybody lied to you. You got set up. Don't publish that article. I'm doing you this big favor by telling you this. And it, was, it, it, it seemed like it was more of a, a sabotage effort to sabotage Chris Butler's publicity. And how long was, was how long was that uh, after the ride-along? It was three months. So um, hmm. the ride-along was September 11th, and this email comes in January 3rd. So that's a really interesting question, how long, because a lot happened between me going on the ride-along with the PI moms and an informant tipping me off. And the, the most important thing that happened in that time, or two, there are two things that happened. One was that Lifetime showed up with a, you know, big budget production crew and an A-list showrunner and started filming the show about the PI moms uh, and filmed from early November to mid-December, um, you know, spent hundreds of thousands, if not into millions of dollars um, producing film for this show. Uh, and the show did not begin smoothly. Like uh, the time I had to report the book, um, I was able to get a lot of access to um, to really fill in, like, how did this all fall apart and why did it fall apart? Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult um, for the Lifetime uh, crew to film that show, um, not just because Chris Butler was a con artist who always staged his cases previously to that, but California has very strict um, consent laws to put people on <laughs> camera. You have to have right. two-party consent. So oh, this, yes. This, this this case that I was following where there's this guy cheating, there's no way they could film that for uh, a reality show because the guy would have to sign off and say, yeah, you can, you know, blur my face, but you can use my image or whatever. And there's just no way he would do that. 
So what the producers of this Lifetime show had to do was find cases where the PI moms could actually help people and nobody would have a problem yeah. with um, having this shown on television. So, you know, reuniting long-lost uh, siblings who were separated right. when they were children or, you know, um, finding a missing teenager who had, had um, run away. Um, and, and, and so what was interesting, I, I thought all along, you know, that this was going to be this expose on how dishonest reality shows are. And what I discovered was that some of the most honest people in this whole mess were these producers that were brought in and had to go drum up actual cases, which Chris Butler and the PI moms were not uh, accustomed to doing because they, they were, always just yeah. sort of staged it. They were um, but, too. but anyway, Pete, I, so this, excuse me, I, got, I have to interrupt because we need to take a really good, quick break. Um, there's so much more to talk about. You're listening to Pete Crooks, the author of The Setup, A True Story of Dirty Cops, Soccer Moms, and Reality TV. We will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Journalist Pete Crooks found himself smack dab in the middle of his own story, and is here to tell us how his promotional piece about a California PI turned into a story about crime, conspiracy, and deceit. So, Pete, you were talking about going on this ride-along, the setup uh, ride-along. Yeah, and we were, you, you asked, you know, how long between going on the ride-along and watching two PI moms follow this guy who was supposed to go to the gym. Instead of going to the gym, he went out to this gated community in Danville 
picked up a young woman. They went wine tasting in Napa. We followed them from, you know, the East Bay to the Napa wine country where we watched them go into a jewelry store and come out with some shopping bags. We sat right across from them in an outdoor patio table at a, at a restaurant in, in the Napa Valley, and then they went to a, a wine tasting, and the, the, the day ended with them going into a Holiday Inn Express together and were, you know, parked in a parking lot watching them walk arm in arm into the Holiday Inn Express. Very complicated day. And, in fact, you know, when I agreed to go on this ride-along, I assumed, you know, it could be us sitting in a stuffy van for 10 hours, staring at a door, waiting for it to open, and it never opens. But I said to the editor, well, if that happened, that's just what happens. Like, it's not going to be all, you know, car chases and shootouts. The, you know, the real work that PIs do is probably, you know, tenacious and somewhat grueling and sometimes boring because you have to stay alert, you know, when, when nothing is happening. But what I witnessed was something wild happening every five minutes of a 10-hour mm-hmm. ride along. Um, and so, again, huge red flag because, you know, I, I had some awareness that it wasn't going to be action-packed, but, boy, you know, it was uh, wall-to-wall infidelity and, and action. And, and um, But it was just such a complex experience that I wasn't thinking I'm the victim of a hoax here. Um, three months after that happened, I get Diablo Magazine gets this email that says it's a hoax and warns us not to publish the article at all. Um, during that three months, Lifetime filmed the, sh- filmed the show for, for two months and had a lot of production problems, but was plugging away and you know, trying to establish these PI mom characters and really not just show their investigative work, but show them at home you know, with their kids and dealing with issues in their marriage and like, you know, show who they were as people. And another major twist is that Chris Butler uh, was in possession of about nine pounds of shrink-wrapped marijuana, one pound per package, that he kept in a footlocker in the garage in his warehouse office in Concord. So while Lifetime is shooting, there's nine pounds of marijuana that Chris Butler is in possession of and he's looking to sell. Now, he gave samples of this marijuana to several of his employees who had maybe a husband or a boyfriend that smokes a lot of marijuana and said, mm-hmm. hey, can you test this, test this out, see you know, what your friends think of it. Um, and the, the, the kind of the buzz that came back was that this was not quality marijuana, that you know, frequent marijuana users were not going to want to buy a pound of this because they're not going to even want to buy a joint of this marijuana. It was, it was, kind, of, um, it was kind of junk. Uh, where did Chris Butler get this marijuana? He got it from the commander of the Central Contra Costa County Narcotics Enforcement Team, a mm-hmm. state-level narcotics agent named Norm Welsh, who had worked with Butler many years before when they were both police officers in Antioch, California. Welsh went on to a, to that point, very distinguished career as a state narcotics agent and was kind of coming to the end of his 25-year law enforcement career the marijuana was kind of found at a UPS store with a fake address and nobody claimed it. And apparently this happens quite often where the, the enforcement team is called in with a suspicious package. They check it out and, you know, it was just going to be destroyed because there was, it wasn't a huge amount of marijuana uh, in perspective and there was nobody attached to the marijuana. Welsh told Butler about the marijuana. Butler says, you know, what happens to it? He goes, oh, we'll just dump it or burn it or whatever. And Butler goes, well, how about giving it to me? Uh, we can, you know, split the money. Um, 
if, if you ask Butler, if you ask Welsh, both of them say, the other guy made me do it. But the fact is, Welsh did give Butler that marijuana with the intent to sell. Um, and it was then, really, and, and Pete, it was really that that then started them on to stealing evidence out of the evidence locker um, and more more involved uh, sales of drugs, meth. There, uh, yeah, it was the, the nine pounds of weed really was, was, was the catalyst. Although they had been in cahoots on various schemes for some time. Um, Welsh would hang out with Butler and go out to lunch and Butler would kind of bring his some of his moms along or also Butler hired young women like in their early 20s to be decoys. And what decoys would do would like in the case of these dirty DUIs that have been, you know, um, unveiled because of, of all of this, um, you know, uh, expose. Uh, in, in a couple of cases, these young women would go into a bar uh, or make an appointment to meet a man who's going through a divorce or a custody battle or something, not realize, this guy doesn't realize that his ex-wife has hired Chris Butler to set him up. And then these sexy young women come in and they buy drinks for the guy and do shots with him and kiss him. And then they say, oh, you know what? We're house-sitting for my grandma who lives just a mile and a half from here. She's got a hot tub. What do you say we take the party over there? Follow me. And then they floor it and drive down in, you know, one case Clayton, one case Concord, uh, down, down the road. And then Butler, you know, calls in a d- drunk driver. The, f- the first one of these happened in 2007. And... Um, Butler just called 911 repeatedly and said, you know, this, this guy driving this truck with this license plate is just hammered and he's driving. And it worked. They popped the guy for the DUI. But <clears throat> Butler then refined his technique. And it, by the end of it, uh, the last two arrests that occurred um, in Danville, California, he made sure that his friend, uh, Deputy Sheriff Steve Tanabe, was on duty that night. Steve Tanabe was aware, you know, of who the mark was. Uh, Tanabe says he didn't realize that Butler was actually employing people to pour the drinks for the guy, but um, Tanabe is now in federal prison for uh, being a conspirator in these dirty DUIs, you know, outrageous civil rights violations. Right. And and w- let's say that uh, also Norm Welch was sentenced to 14 years in federal prison as well. Yeah, Welch got the the stiffest punishment of all. And, and you know, he was the highest-ranking law enforcement officer who completely betrayed his oath and his and the public trust. Um, you know, starting with those nine pounds of marijuana, there were also mega loads of Russian steroids that Welch was both taking and giving the butler to sell. And then when we're skip, we're kind of skipping back and forth in time, but right. this this informant who who emailed Diablo, I kept in touch with the, the informant. And about a week after I was told that the ride-along I had gone on was fake, I got this whopper of a curveball, which was, look, Chris Butler is involved with drug dealing. The head of the Narcotics Task Force is involved. I don't know who to go to. I certainly can't go to the head of the Narcotics Task Force. Do you know anybody in law enforcement that I can, you know, I can give this information to? Please, please help me. And it so happened that I knew an investigator in the Alameda County DA's office, who I knew was absolutely trustworthy, and that's how the criminal investigation started. I went, I brought the allegations to a trustworthy law enforcement source and sort of kick-started the investigation and, and, and had this informant hand over, um, you know, meet with, with 
both the Contra Costa DA, they were, the Contra Costa DA investigators were made aware, and then the state DOJ investigators. And so a very complicated uh, deep cover investigation began, and Chris Butler was caught on tape repeatedly selling pounds of marijuana, steroids, pills, all sorts of stuff that he had access to. But the big, big, you know, no doubt about it, let's make the arrest now uh, event was in February 2011, Welsh had a judge sign a destruction order for a pound of very, very potent crystal meth that was sitting in the evidence locker in, in Martinez. And uh, Welsh goes over there, Butler driving, takes a pound of crystal meth that was going to be destroyed, had been taken off the street, and takes it out of the evidence locker, does drive to the dump where he's supposed to destroy it, but then drives back to Butler's office and sells this pound of meth to the informant for $10,000, who then hands it over to the Department of Justice. And the very next day, Welsh and Butler are arrested on 28 felony counts. So it's an outrageous, uh, yeah. you know, break of confidence in the public trust. You know, a pound of marijuana, I mean, even one joint is absolutely unacceptable for the head of CNET to be yeah. selling, you know. But, well, you know, and Pete, a pound this- of meth. The math too. What um, wasn't that? Let's see. It seems like if I remember correctly, that was confiscated from a guy who then turned informant, and the charges were dropped. Is that right? Yeah, nobody was prosecuted for that mess. Uh, so yeah, it, the guy the guy flipped on on his dealer or whatever. But but the fact was, Welsh had brought that guy in, so he right. knew that evidence was sitting there. And was kind of like, hey, we have to make it happen fast or it's going to get destroyed. I mean, there's one time, I listened to this one recording of Butler, who just fit to be tied because um, there were three pounds of meth and two of them had been destroyed before they had a chance to sell them. And he was just, you know, sick mm-hmm. about it. And it's like mm-hmm. out- outrageous that the, the lack of conscience that, you know, um, that they could make fast, cheap money on, the, on these, you know, toxic narcotics that mm-hmm. the whole point of Welsh's position is to get those right. off the street. Right. And, and then, um, you know, there's so, many, there's so many facets to this. I don't want to forget anything because it, it's just, uh, as you and I talked about earlier, this is something you just can't make up. It's so outrageous. Right. Um, but they involved, uh, besides Steve Tanabe from Danville Police Department. They also does, uh, involved Lou Lombardi. Yeah, Louis Lombardi was a San Ramon police officer who had worked at CNET. So it might be helpful to define what CNET yeah, was. Absolutely. It no longer exists. So um, it was a uh, multi-jurisdictional task force headed by the state narcotics department with Norm Welsh, who had so much contra cost experience running it since, I think, 2002 he took over CNET. It uh, had been around since the 1980s, had brought in many, many arrests and, and many um, uh, busts on medium to high-level drug uh, dealing operations in, in the East Bay area. Um, by my estimation, had been a very reputable law enforcement uh, operation. And, and what CNET used was um, they kind of had a rotating staff of uh, maybe a dozen uh, police officers and detectives from the various Contra Costa uh, police departments. Some, sometimes there would be somebody from San Ramon, sometimes mm-hmm. there would be someone from Martinez, and they would, um, they would kind of 
come and go in year or two year um, stints. And so Louis Lombardi had worked um, high up in CNET with Norm, but he was no longer involved uh, in CNET when this happened. But Lombardi also um, took marijuana, some of that original marijuana, and gave it to a, uh, uh, an informant to sell. Uh, that marijuana crossed state lines because that informant was in Arizona. Uh, but Lombardi also had all kinds of problems. He was uh, addicted to, to cocaine himself mm. and was buying cocaine from another informant uh, who for a while thought that, um, you know, he was buying cocaine, you know, as part of an investigation. And then the informant realized that Lou was just buying cocaine $100, $200 at a time usually on a Thursday or Friday, and never asked questions about where it was coming from, just insisted mm-hmm. that it hadn't been stepped on. It was, you know, high-quality marijuana. And yeah. so uh, Lombardi was also, you know, revealed that he was just stealing from people on search warrants. So he'd have a search warrant to go into somebody's house and a pair of sunglasses or a really good bottle of scotch would go out the door with him. Um, but you know so, what's yeah, amazing? There was, there was it's amazing. Another Pete. one. What's amazing, uh, I'm look, looking at a news article about Lou Lombardi's, uh, uh, where he pled guilty, and he was charged with misdemeanors, four misdemeanor counts, for, and it says, for stealing thousands of dollars in cash and property during searches of sub- suspects' homes, and to five counts for possessing and selling drugs and stolen firearms when he worked at, the, at CNET. It, I thought Lombardi yeah. did have other charges. Um, yeah. Well, you know, in my reporting, it doesn't say uh, felony, so uh, that's interesting. But yeah, fifty thousand dollars in cash is that should be a felony, right? That's more than yeah, you think two thousand or whatever. But anyway, yeah, looted fifteen three years, and I think you have to do eighty five percent. You know, he he was the first one to plead and the first one to go in, and I think he's out now. He should be now, and then, then we haven't mentioned what Chris got. That was outrageous. He was sentenced to eight years. Yeah, he got eight years. Probably could have gotten up to 20. Um, And then he had a year knocked off because he was a cooperative witness um, in the prosecution of Steve Tanabe. And uh, I I believe Butler's defense was, you are caught so red-handed, cooperate, you know, to the hill and tell them everything you know about, especially with the, when, when the case went federal, it really seemed that they wanted to make sure that every police officer or officer of the court that was implicated in any way was exposed. And so Butler just, you know, flipped on uh, all these cops that, you know, either had come to him or that he had sort of twisted the arm and said, hey, you know, what if we did this or could you help me get this guy arrested for DUI? That would look great for you because... You get more DUI arrests in your, you know, you get credit for more of that in your town. Um, so Butler just snitched on everybody. Um, and he's a very intelligent guy with a somewhat photographic memory, I guess. And so mm-hmm. I believe he was very helpful to federal investigators and prosecutors, you know, after, uh, after he was exposed. Yeah, and he, and he certainly was caught red-handed. But, but you know, it just doesn't stop there. So... Evidently, uh, Chris had a, also ran a brothel. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, a nice one. So, um, yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot of prostitution in this story. There's, there's three 
really <laughs> unbelievable prostitution stories. One is that Welsh, while CNET's main function was narcotics investigations, Welsh would also bust prostitutes from time to time around the East Bay. And to my surprise, there's a ton of prostitution in the suburban East Bay, everything from, you know, sensual massage parlors to just brothels and Mm -hmm. maybe working out of an apartment. Now, a lot of these prostitutes are Asian immigrant women, young women Mm -hmm. brought over maybe in a shipping container, totally illegally in the country. There's no visa, work visa, to work as a prostitute out of the Holiday Inn. Um, and they were advertising on Craigslist and on a website that doesn't exist anymore called Redbook. That's basically a Craigslist prostitution, you know, uh, yellow pages. Right. And Welsh would find these prostitutes, um, their advertisements, have Butler or Welsh call and say, you know, we want to make a, an appointment for 8 p.m., come over there and just punch the door open and come in with his badge and just steal their cash, their computer, their cell phone, and, and leave them hanging. Now, what's the Asian prostitute who doesn't have a work visa and is doing illegal That's sex right. work going to say? You know, like, right. She can't call the police, you know, right. and she has to tell her pimp at some point that she had all her, you know, money stolen. So what happens there? It's just, again, outrageous exploitation of some of the, you know, least helpable people in, in the community. And so Butler and Welsh participated in, in a bunch of those robberies and, and were both um, charged with, uh, with felonies for that when they were exposed. Um, in another case that's just so complex that maybe I'll, I'll just speed through it, they set up a <laughs> prostitute to be arrested um, yeah. at the behest of one of Butler's clients, uh, this North Bay, Marin County woman who had hired Butler before, knew that her husband was dating this 23-year-old woman who advertised on Red Book. She was furious about it. So Butler set up the woman to come out to Walnut Creek. Uh, and the woman thought she was coming on a, on a prostitution date, but it was totally approved and supervised by Welsh. And two other police officers were in the room, and some of the PI moms were there. One of them brought a pizza so they'd all have something to eat while they watched this 23-year-old woman be arrested. And so, um, you know, Butler rented adjoining rooms. They totally set up the, the prostitute's thing room with hidden cameras. This woman comes in, takes some money off the night table, goes in and changes into a teddy, comes back. Butler's got a male decoy in the, in the room there. And as soon as she touches him in a, you know, in a sexual place, three cops come in and arrest her. And that woman had an outstanding, um, uh, warrant because she had missed a probation meeting from an right. earlier, you know, yeah. hassle. She went to state prison for three years and she didn't know why she was set up or how she was set up until I contacted her after she got out of jail three years later and met her at a Starbucks and showed her the whole case file and explained how, you know, she was really set up by this corrupt private investigator and a corrupt police officer who are now both in prison for it. And it was just horrifying for her to realize that, you know, she didn't see her three-year-old son until he was six years old because of, you know, of this, of this situation. Now she had made a lot of bad decisions um, Mm -hmm. up until that point in her life to get into the position where she had an outstanding um, probation violation, but still it's insane 
that Welsh would supervise that because she wasn't prostituting in Walnut Creek. They lured her out to Walnut Creek where they had the, you know, the authority yeah. to set her up yeah. like that. And so finally, Butler would always hear from Welsh, like, we will, you know, we'll sometimes bust these places and find $70,000 in cash in a sock drawer or whatever. They make so much money. So mm-hmm. Butler goes, I'm going to rent, I'm going to run my own massage parlor. And we'll never get busted because we'll just, you know, we'll have the inside uh, scoop from Welsh. And so, you know, depending on who you ask, Butler says, this was all Welsh's idea. I just managed it, but it was Welsh's brothel. Welsh says, I never knew that that was going on at all until after it had been shut down. And I don't believe either of them. I think they're both complicit. But the way it operated was Butler hired, uh, rented out, um, uh, a former sort of nail salon suite in Pleasant Hill in a very tidy little shopping center. And then he used one of his decoys who had had some experience in sensual massage to bring in some of her friends. And they were supposed to all pay, I think four or five girls were supposed to pay $500 a week to have the space. And then whatever they made over that $500 a week, they could keep. And it was just a mess. It was like the worst run brothel in the history of prostitution and Butler lost a lot of money on it uh, because the girls just didn't pay the $500 and, um, and Butler was so biz- was so obsessed with running his, um, his uh, TV show and getting his TV show that he yeah. didn't keep a really tight look on it. But he did have hidden cameras in that, um, in that Pleasant Hill office and a lot of dudes came through there and I believe he had those, cameras on hand just in case a local mayor or a, Mm. you know, Mm. recognizable um, personality came through for a massage one day that there would be, uh, you know. (laughs) Pretty good blackmail. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, Pete, I'm getting bombarded with questions here. I got to, let me give you a couple of these. Um, Okay. One person wants to know what happened to the informant. What what happened to the guy that, that, that you called Rutherford that was the informant uh, initially? Well, Rutherford was emailing me and asking me, please, please, can you help me? I owe you so much for just listening to this. And then one of his requests was, I need to be assured that I will be free from prosecution if I decide to help with this. And, you know, I had to say, look, dude, I'm the society reporter for Diablo Magazine. <laughs> I can't. I cannot give you any kind of guarantee. It's an outrageous request, right? So right. My, my feeling was this person obviously is in, in some trouble and isn't just naively like, oh, my goodness, I have to do the right thing. And, in fact, when I went to my law enforcement source, she said right away, look, this guy's dirty. Like, he's not just telling, he's not just bringing this forward because uh, it's the right thing to do. He's got to get out of trouble here. Mm-hmm. And, and that's pretty much consistently what, um, what the Department of Justice told me in interviews later. And, uh, he did do an outstanding job wearing a wire and collecting evidence during that investigation, so right. kudos to that. Uh, but I would, I would later find out that just three days before um, coming to me and saying, can you put me in touch with law enforcement, please, you know, I'm in such danger and I don't know who to go to and you're the only person I can trust. The same person posed as a reporter from Diablo magazine to set up the guy for a dirty DUI arrest. Oh man! <laughs> the, oh my gosh! The, the, the pitch was <laughs> that Diablo magazine wanted to do a story about this man's business. 
we have to meet in Danville at a wine bar because Diablo has an account with that wine bar that we can expense the bill to. And it was all a way to make sure that the, the, the setup happened where Steve Tanabe could be on duty and just parked across the street to pull the guy over as soon just as he didn't happened use an to be indicator. There. Right. So, yeah. so there's a, the, the book really gets into the informant, but I will say that the informant was not a law enforcement officer and did help with the investigation and was never prosecuted for, okay. um, he was, for he was any of the criminal activity that they were very clearly involved with for, for quite a long time. Okay, another question. <laughs> Somebody wants to know if you mailed a copy of your book to Chris and Norm. <laughs> Good question. I did not mail a copy to Chris. He can buy one. Uh, but I do know that a copy has been mailed to Norm. Um, oh, really? Yeah, uh, I know. I got to know the Welsh family. Like, I, I did long interviews with Welsh, and for the most part, I think he was direct and um, upfront. The one thing was he swore to the last day I saw him before he went in to, to prison that he never knew anything about that brothel. And I got to know the, the woman that managed the massage parlor, and there was a very wild event where... Norm and two of these masseuses had a little tryst in a hotel room, uh, all arranged by Chris Butler, but Norm has um, really severe peripheral neuropathy, and one of the side effects of neuropathy was that uh, he's impotent. And so this this three-way in the hotel room did not turn into the uh, wild night of passion that that Norm was hoping for or that Chris Butler was hoping to set Norm up with, depending again mm-hmm. on who you listen to, that it, it wound up with two women and two 20 something women and Norm, uh, watching a movie on cable in a hotel room. Um, oh, great. <laughs> and, but, but d- during that event, the manager of the brothel said to Norm, they, they used the, the code name Ed for Norm whenever, uh-huh. Whenever she talked to the other women, she said, there's a police officer named Ed that's protecting us so we can't get caught. And she mentioned Ed to Norm, and she says that Norm said, hey, you know, we don't need to use the name Ed. So it was clear that he was uh, completely he was aware the of the massage yeah. parlor and what was going on. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, okay. apparently he's got a copy, and he is taking ministerial classes and is, is pursuing... Um, you know, a uh, uh, life in, behind the cloth, I think, um, you know, after he gets out or well, while good. he's in. That's a good yeah. thing. He, he has a lot to offer that way. Yeah, and, and I do think, like, uh, of all these people, Welsh felt ashamed, you know, for the, for the damage he did to the reputation of law enforcement. You know, he didn't ever completely fess up that, like, this is outrageous what I did and I, you know, I need to be punished, he, he would still say, well, I didn't kill anybody and things like that. But he could have more of an awareness, certainly, than Chris Butler. I, I really think, I got the impression that Chris Butler is furious with me for exposing him because he's like, look, I hired all these people to set up that ride along. I was giving you a great story, and you went and, you know, stabbed me in the back. He's went and screwed so, it up, Pete. <laughs> yeah, What's the, up the, with the that? sense of responsibility <laughs> I did get, in my impression, Welsh oh. felt it more than, than Butler did. But, you know, up until his sentencing date, he was still saying, like, a lot of what happened was because my feet hurt. Yeah. Well, um, now we know all the, these PI moms um, were complicit in 
these setups and the dirty DUIs and all of that. Well, have well, any let's, of them- let's, be, let's be really careful about that because that's a really interesting bit of reporting. What the PI moms, there, there, there are a number of, there were five women that were going to be cast members on the PI moms. And then there was another woman who was supposed to be a cast member on the PI mom, part, was, one of the, was driving the van that I rode around in. But when the reality show started to film, um, she realized that this was not going to work. They were going to show her going through a divorce and, and it, was gonna, it, was, it didn't pay very much. And so she, she walked away. So there are like six of these PI moms and only two of them were complicit in DUI setups, okay. and one of them was complicit in the setup of a Richmond police officer. Several of the PI moms were definitely complicit in the setups of media, these kind of uh, fake stories to get to build up the house of cards. And at least one of the PI moms, from what I can tell, did not participate in setting up the media and certainly didn't participate in any criminal activities. I just want to be really clear about that. Okay. That's they're um, very fair. The PI moms were selling drugs, and they weren't. Um, uh, they weren't all setting up people for DUIs, and that. that some of them, you know, their worst crime was this fifteen minutes of fame that they were searching up, and they were willing to lie to the media. But um, and, and at least one of them was even clear of that. Yeah. So, have any of these women become licensed private investigators? Yeah. Um, there's one. I think two of them got their PI license, but I know one of them did and, and runs a PI uh, business out of Vallejo. And, you know, I kept in touch with her. I didn't know if she wasn't part of my ride-along. She wasn't part of any of that. She was very, very embarrassed by, um, obviously, by, mm-hmm. you know, what Chris Butler was exposed for. She was actually going to be sort of the main PI mom on that show because her personal story was so interesting and um, I do know that in her PI work, she's she's done some some she's investigated some cases very successfully and helped people um, with her PI work. So she's she's mentioned in the book in the wrap up at the end that she does run a PI business. And um, of all those PI moms, she's the one that kind of followed through and and you know went to work as an investigator and kind of left the the TV you know reality show fame behind. Yeah. Okay. That's. Uh... Good. That's great. And I don't want to forget either that there was the attorney that was involved, the family law attorney that was involved with Chris Butler and the duty, dirty DUIs was also charged and sentenced as well. Sure. Let's just name her. Mary, Mary Nolan, the San, <laughs> San Ramon divorce attorney. Um, by what I can tell, she was feeding clients over to Butler. Um, and uh, one of the charges that Butler you know, pled guilty to was that he had bugged um, or wiretapped 75 to 100 cars over 10 years. Uh, So while there are a couple of these really spectacular Mm. cases like the dirty DUIs, this is a really unsettling fact that shakes out that 100 different divorcing spouses had their cars illegally bugged so you know, the, the ex-wife or the ex-husband, it almost always seemed to be ex-wives coming to Butler, but, you know, I, I don't like to paint with a, a thoroughly broad brush. Um, and it's just very unsettling to think that, you know, your private conversations in your car with your divorce attorney or with your kids um, are being listened to by this PI that likes to set people up. And in one case, um, I think federal investigators went to this woman's house and she handed over two CDs of, you know, of recorded conversations that had been given wow. to her by her attorney. 
and it was it was all over for Mary Nolan after that. Um, Mary Nolan's, uh, I think she had two years. Um, she had terrible tax evasion issues, and then you know was a conspirator in these um, in these wiretapping cases. Pete, but, we're, uh, yeah. no, we're at the end of our show. This is just so fascinating. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to share your story, Pete. And I know your book was just published last week. Um, it's hot off the press. I, you can get get it on Amazon.com. And again, the uh, title is The Setup, A True Story of Dirty Cops, Soccer Moms, and Reality TV. Today's program is a sad saga about a rogue PI and corrupt cops driven all by greed. And Pete Crooks, my guest, had a front row seat. Thanks, Pete. Hey, I really so appreciate much. you being. Yeah, I really appreciate you being on the show. So join me again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Pete Crooks. Every Thursday morning, twelve noon Eastern, nine a.m. Pacific. It's PIs Declassify. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 